Okay, I'm here now with George Ellis at a conference on the philosophy of cosmology. So that's two very big and important words in one title. So let's start with the second word, cosmology. Um, people might have some idea of what it is. It has the word cosmos in it, so it's somehow about the cosmos. But what is cosmology in particular? And you make quite an interesting distinction in your talk. Well, I distinguish between cosmology with a small c, which is looking at the large-scale structure of the physical universe. You look at galaxies, you look at microwave background radiation, you look at stars and so on, and you see how that all fits together into the story of the evolution of the expanding universe. And then I talk about cosmology with a capital C, which is when you take that all very seriously, but you add in ideas about the meaning of life, why we're here in the universe, what, if anything, all of the the, the, our existence in the cosmos which provides the environment and for us and makes our life possible what that has to say about meaning in life and so, or destiny and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and <coughs> so which one of these two are actually accessible to scientific methods well the scientific method deals with cosmology with a small c um, even there it runs up against limits because cosmology with a small c would like to say something about how the universe began, the start of the universe, and I would like to say something about the multiverse, if it exists or not. Those are both difficult to deal with scientifically. Cosmology with a capital C must, by its nature, mainly be involved with philosophical issues. Mm -hmm. So if we stick to the cosmology <coughs> with a little c, um, where we have more chance of getting anywhere, maybe just with scientific methods, there is one obstacle that is already, which is that there is only one universe. So could you explain why that is a problem? Well, in normal physics, you, take, you get a theory of how things work, and then you go out <coughs> and you take many copies of that object and you do experiments on them, and you get a statistical result about how it behaves. When you've got only one universe, all you can do is observe the one thing that exists, so you can't get any statistics. You can get statistics of aspects of the universe, but you can't compare different universes with each other, so you can't get statistics of different universe models, and that makes it different from every other science. Mm. And... Um, when we think of physics as we, lower, uh, as we learn it at school, we often talk about the laws of physics, so there might be something like Newton's law of gravitation or of motion, um, and then we, we have a system that obeys those laws, say a couple of billiard balls moving around, and the, their starting, their initial conditions will inform the way the law plays out. Oh. So how does that, that concept of a law of physics fit into... <laughs> Um, <clears throat> the context of cosmology, when you're thinking of the whole universe, what, what is the law of physics? Well, the law of physics applies at the level of systems like the solar system or galaxies and so on, and so you can average it out to see what that says for the dynamics of the universe at large. And so basically, you take the law applying everywhere locally, and then you work out, if it applies everywhere locally, what does it say about how bigger systems work? And that's basically what Einstein, Eddington, Lemaitre, Friedman did in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. So that already, again, raises an interesting philosophical question because um, you mentioned that in a talk as well, because then if there's this law of physics that s de describes or perhaps dictates how the universe works, then where does that live? I mean, is that part of the universe? Is <laughs> that, what, what is that? Well, in some sense, it's not part of the universe. In some sense, it underlies the universe because it controls how matter behaves. But it is not itself made of matter. Law of physics isn't made of lead or uranium or something. So it is a, a prescription for how matter should behave that underlies it. So I tend to think of it living it as a platonic space. That means this, <coughs> the laws of physics do not depend on human beings for their existence. 
our understanding of the laws does. So you must distinguish the laws per se and what we know about them. So the subject of physics studies the things themselves which are the laws. Those live in some abstract platonic space in my view, whereas the subject of the laws of physics lives in our social collective mind. Mm-hmm. But somebody might say to you that basically the laws don't prescribe how the universe works. They dis- describe it, they describe it yeah. from our point of view. So are they so they are they human inventions? I mean this is a very similar question to whether mathematics is something that is discovered or invented by us. So what would you say to somebody who says, well this is just our way of describing the universe? Um, well it is our way of describing the universe. Um, we don't know whether the laws are descriptive or prescriptive, and that's one of, one of the big difficulties. We can't tell. <coughs> um, what we can tell is they are well described by mathematics, and that is in our minds. What we don't know is <laughs> if, in some sense, the laws of physics are written with mathematics built into them. What we do know... If, uh, I believe, is that mathematics exists again in a platonic space. In other words, there's a, there's a mathematical reality which we explore with our minds, we understand to some extent, we don't to some extent, but the fact the square root of two is irrational is a fact which exists independent of the human mind, the fact that Pythagoras' theorem is true and all of that. And so we discover those things rather than inventing them. So I believe in a platonic world of mathematics and a platonic world of physics. I'm not sure how they relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you also <coughs> mentioned in your talk something about um, <coughs> possibility spaces. Yeah. So could you explain that and how that fits into Well, when you have laws of physics or laws of mathematics, you can find spaces of solutions, and the solutions are possible behaviors described by those equations. So, for instance, um, you can move in such a way that momentum is conserved, but you can't move in a way where momentum is not conserved. And so the possibility space is a set of all possible motions And within that, there are constraints which says what is and what isn't possible. Now, using possibility spaces has quite a few advantages. One is that it ties into other possibility spaces. For instance, in biology, people talk about the possibility landscape for animals and so on. And (coughs) I can think of other ones which are interesting. (coughs) So it's quite useful to talk about possibility spaces rather than the laws themselves which make this possibility space possible. In physics you call them phase spaces or um, uh, Hilbert spaces or something like that. So maybe just to clarify again, you mentioned the football earlier, so if I think of kicking a football um, there's all sorts of paths it could take, I mean it could go up and go once around the moon and come back and anything but the laws of physics are expressed in the fact that there are constraints in this yeah. space of many there, there are allowed paths within possibility space and you, you, can, you can choose which allowed path you'll move on but you can't choose to move on a path which is not allowed. And that ties in with other areas where there's also possibility landscapes. You mentioned animals in biology yeah. so there is only a certain landscape within which an animal can exist? There's a, there's a certain set of possible animals like for instance you can't get a mouse who's six foot tall because it doesn't work biologically. Now the possibility landscape is a set of possible animals. Evolution has explored part of that possibility space and not other ones. So for instance, a unicorn is in fact a perfectly possible animal. It's just that it didn't occur, it didn't seem to be, evolution didn't discover it if you like. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Now there's another interesting thing you mentioned in your talk, um, which I, I think it relates to the fact that there are theories and ideas in theoretical physics expressed in mathematics usually that we cannot actually 
test. And yeah. I don't know whether they're never testable or we cannot test them at the moment. And you mentioned that some people kind of um, propose that we should weaken the criteria of science so that we would yeah. be satisfied with less of a proof, so yeah. to speak. So you said that that's dangerous. And could you give an example of a context where people have suggested that we should do that? Well, the context is the multiverse, the supposition that there's many, many universe domains out there, something like the one we live in. Now, we can't see them. And so there's absolutely no direct evidence, and it's, it never will be possible to get direct evidence. If you could show that the laws of physics necessarily imply their existence, that would be fairly convincing, but you can't test that physics either. The physics is also not testable. And so it's a supposition which is very good for some explanatory purposes, but if you can't test it, then you have to say, well, is this now a scientific proposal or a philosophical proposal? And actually, I wrote about this Scientific American some time ago, And in my view, you should say this is scientifically inspired philosophy, not science, because I think you should draw a hard line. Now, a couple of people are suggesting we should weaken the requirement of science. If we have a really strong theoretical argument, we should say it's so good we no longer need to test it in the way we've taken for granted up to now. I think that's very dangerous, and I think it would allow all sorts of pseudosciences to be reclassified as science, and I don't think we want to see that happen. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned design and astrology as, yeah. as examples. Yeah. Okay. But then this gives us a very good point to end on, because that really highlights the fact why, why we need a philosophy of cosmology, yeah. because some, some of these scientific questions do become philosophical, because they, they are not testable. They do, because we are pushing science to the limits of what is testable. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>